I heard a story about a company that hired a new CEO, and the new boss wanted to make kind of his mark, make his mark known, and so he decided to take a tour of the facility, a tour of the, uh, the workplace to see if he could make an example of any slackers on the job. And so he was making the rounds and he came to a room full of workers and there was one young guy in particular who was kind of standing off from everybody else against the wall and kind of minding his own business. And so wanting to show the workers that he meant business, everybody else, the CEO walked right up to the guy and he said, how much money do you make a week? And the guy said, well, I don't know, around $300, I guess. Why? CEO pulled out his wallet, pulled out $600 and he said, here's two weeks pay. I want you to take it and get out of here and don't come back. Feeling pretty good about his firing, the CEO looked around the room and he said, now does anyone know what that slacker did around here? And one of the guys spoke up and he said, yeah, he's the pizza delivery guy. (laughs) Well, you got to be careful sometimes, right? We are in the midst of a series called Home Improvement, in which we've been walking through the Apostle Paul's words in Ephesians chapters 5 and 6. And he's been talking to us, and we've hopefully been garnering some of the wisdom that he has to tell us about some of the key relational arenas in our lives, namely that of our marriages, of our relationships with our parents, parents' relationship with their children, and then as we're going to talk about today, even our relationships in the workplace. And I think Paul's instructions for us here uh, has so much to say to us about our relationship with Jesus and how our relationship with Jesus really does have everything to do with how we view our work and how we interact with others in the workplace. So Ephesians chapter 5, or excuse me, Ephesians chapter 6, uh, if you want to go ahead and turn there or you can follow along up on the screen, we'll be looking at verses 5 through 9. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Here's what Paul writes. Slaves, Obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. So let me go ahead and address the elephant in the room, so to speak. You might notice that while Paul gives very plain instructions as to how masters are to treat their slaves in this context and how slaves are to treat their masters, uh, nowhere in this passage is slavery itself condemned. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on that, but I at least want to address that so that we can get past that and hopefully get some wisdom out of this passage. I think part of it is understanding that the slavery that Paul is talking about and and dealing with, the context of that slavery, is a little bit different than what we typically think of as slavery when we think of it today. Most of us, when we think about slavery, think about the 17th century and after race-based slavery uh, that was originated in Africa, ended up being brought over to America, over in Europe as well. That's the idea of slavery that's probably in our heads when we think about that and we read a passage like this. And so when we read it through that lens, it's very easy to think, well, why doesn't Paul condemn that? If we, we know what we know about our country's past and the, 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 the history of race-based slavery, if we, if we know that, why doesn't Paul uh, address that? Well, A, he, he was long before that, uh, and, and B, it was a little bit different than what we often think of uh, as, 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 
as it relates to race-based slavery. Slavery in the first century was a little bit different than that. For instance, slaves were involved in most areas of society, not just in menial labor, hard labor. Many slaves were educated. Uh, In some cases, they were even more educated than their masters. Some slaves had managerial positions over other people. Uh, Some even owned their own property. Some slaves made the same wages as free laborers, uh, and they were actually allowed to save money to buy back their freedom. Uh, Now, how one got to be a slave was through a number of different circumstances. Uh, It could be through birth. Uh, Sometimes your children, we talked about this last week, that fathers had pretty much full power over their families. Well, sometimes fathers would sell their children into slavery to make money. Um, So that was a way that, that you could be, you know, in, in, uh, in, in that situation. Uh, sometimes you just were abandoned, and so you ended up in, in slavery. Uh, sometimes you were a captive of war. Sometimes it was because you had the inability to pay debts, and so you had to work those off. So even sometimes the word servant is a better word than slave, but that also is applicable as well. For some, it was even a voluntary attempt to better their social or financial position. Sometimes you sold yourself into slavery to be able to pay off some of your debts. And certainly the way one came to be a slave could factor into how they were viewed and how they were treated. But by and large, my point is to say that race was typically not a factor. So just kind of removing ourselves from thinking through that, um, I, I don't want to, you know, the, the other part obviously is bad. You know, race-based slavery, we, you know, we could spend I don't know how many lessons talking about that, but that's not exactly what Paul is is referencing here. Now, having said that, I am not saying, nor is Paul saying, that any type of slavery is good or right or God's ideal or God's desire and want. That is obviously not the case at all. But for Paul, at least here, he's less concerned, just from my take on this, he's less concerned about addressing the situation that we're in and more concerned about how we act and respond to the situation that we are in. And so that's what Paul deals with. And just to be clear, the race-based slavery that made its way to America, happened over in Europe and in Africa, was rooted in kidnapping and human trafficking, which that's something that the Bible explicitly condemns. The Bible also condemns the core assumptions that um, that are a part of slavery, whether it's race-based slavery, the first century slavery that we see, the dehumanizing of people who are made in God's image. That's clearly condemned in, in Scripture, the abuse and mistreatment of people uh, and others, the very idea of ownership over someone else, uh, another human being, all of those things are condemned by God and by Scripture. Now, Paul did try to encourage slaves, servants, uh, to try and buy their freedom if they, were, if they were able to do that. But until then, he encouraged them to serve their earthly masters. And not only that, but he also encouraged them to go back to their earthly masters if they were somehow to escape from them for whatever reason. In fact, that's a whole, if you read the book of Philemon, it's a very short book, but that's a whole lot of what the book of Philemon is about in addressing that issue. And so while certainly Paul, you know, deals with some things and what I just described to you doesn't address everything that Paul deals with and some of the underlying, I get that. We, you know, I don't want to spend a whole time period talking about that, Um, but I at least hopefully wanted to give you some context and and some of the story behind what's going on here and how the the context is just a little bit different than we often think about it uh, in in our day and age because of what we've experienced in our country. Now, all that being said, I know that was a mouthful. 
hopefully we can uh, dig into some of what this passage has to say for us. But I do think it's easy to come to a passage like this and to wonder, well, what is the relevance then? If I look at this context, it seems to be, you know, where where do I go with this? Because we don't really deal with, you know, these type of interactions. This context uh, is different than what we experience today. But I do think there is wisdom for for us to gain from Paul's words here as he instructs us on God's perspective for our work and how we conduct ourselves and relate to other people in the workplace. So let me just give you a few things. Hopefully we can shift gears a little bit there. But let me just give you a few things to think about. The first is this. God is a worker. God is a worker. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, but I want you to to at least get that into your brains. Uh, In the opening pages of the Bible, the very first time you see God, he is at work, creating. He is speaking the world, creating the world, uh, uh, you know, into existence. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 talks about Jesus, but it also is talking about God and how Even as we speak, God holds, Jesus holds all of creation together. He's at work. Jesus himself said in John chapter 5, verse 17, my father is always at work to this very day. And so God is a worker. And I say that to then build off to the second point, which is this. Work is one of the things that we were made for. Now, some of you are saying, great, that's awesome because I hate work. But work is one of the things that you were created for. For one, you were made in the image of God, who is a worker, right? Who, who, is, who is at work. Now, part of what we have to do is separate in our minds some of the, the laboriousness and, and some of the, uh, I don't know what a good word is, uh, other than just the, the taxing nature of work that we experience now because of the fall uh, to what the purpose of work is meant to do. And that's part of what God created us for. And so Genesis chapter 2 reminds us that God gave Adam and Eve the command to work the garden. Before sin entered the picture, that was the command of God. So work didn't come after sin entered the picture. God commanded Adam and Eve to work the garden before sin ever entered the picture. A lot of people think that work is a product of the curse, but it's not. Work existed before the curse, but sin just brought in a whole nother layer and layers of difficulty and, and, and what this world would bring to us and what our bodies would experience. Um, and so work was made difficult because of the curse, but work was in place before sin and the curse came into play. But engaging is work, and work is something that you and I were created to do. It's part of God's original divine design. It's part of what's in our nature, to do something productive and meaningful. Here's the key, though. Even though work is one of the things that you and I were created for, work was never meant to be the source of our identity. Our work was never meant to be the source of who we are at the core, even though it's funny because in conversations that you have, you tell people, hey, you meet somebody, my name's Josh, my name's so-and-so. What is almost always the next question that comes up? What do you do? And so even, even from a not even meaning to, you know, subconscious level, we, that's where we go to. That's oftentimes what we define ourselves by. And yet that's not meant to define, it's not meant to be the source. It's a good thing. It's a good thing, but it's not meant to be the source of your identity. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Again, the context is slaves, but hopefully we have a little bit different context here. Listen to what he says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Starting verse 20, he says, each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. 
although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's free person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Don't become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. So what's going on here? Well, there were some people who were slaves at the time that they were coming to Christ. And yet when they came to Christ, a lot of them were troubled by the fact that, hey, I'm, a, I'm, 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 I'm come to Christ. I'm, I'm free in Christ. I, I've learned that I'm equal with any person, no matter where I am on the hierarchy chain or you know, slave-master relationship. And yet I'm still a slave. I'm still a slave in my everyday life. And Paul says, listen, if you can gain your freedom, absolutely do that. But don't let the fact that you're a slave get you down in the meantime. Why? Because when you came to Christ, when the slave came to Christ, they became free in the most important sense of the word, Paul is saying. Listen to the verse again. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's free person, freed person. And some of the slaves who had come to Christ needed to be reminded that their identity wasn't primarily as a slave. Yes, that's, that's what in that culture... And in that setting, that's what they were. But in Christ, that didn't define them. That had no bearing of who they were in Christ. And I know, again, sometimes it's hard to totally wrap that around our, our, our brains, but just get the concept, hopefully. Their identity was not as a slave. It was as a freed person in Christ. You know, some people have particular jobs where you may work for other people. A lot of us probably work for other people. But maybe some of us don't per- feel particularly worthy because maybe we're at the bottom of the totem pole. Maybe we have a whole lot of people that are over us. Or maybe we are on the opposite side of that, and we'll address that in a moment. But, you know, um, we just don't feel all that important. And what Paul remind, would remind us of is don't get your identity from that. Don't, don't assume that where you rank in your, in your work or above or below people somehow defines who you are and your identity and the source of, of what makes you meaningful and valued. Don't assume that that is going to define you. You have your identity from the fact that you are free in Christ, no matter how many people are under you. Paul is encouraging them to separate their identity from their vocational status and to realize their true identity in Christ. But Paul also has some words for masters as well. I told you I'd come back to that. He says, similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. In essence, Paul says, listen, those of you who are free, those of you who may have people under you, don't forget that you yourselves are under Christ. Don't forget that you have to answer to him. And we'll dig into that more in in just a moment. But the point is that in both cases, neither slaves nor masters were to get their identity from their vocational status or from how many people they were under or from how many people were under them. They were to get their identity from their relationship to Christ. I'm free in Christ. And guess what? I'm also a slave to Christ. He's my master. And so I go about my work from a place of security because I know who I am in Christ. But I also go about my work from a place of humility and accountability because I know I've got to answer to somebody even if I've got a whole bunch of people that answer to me. Now, why is this important? Because when you have people who get their identity from their work, it can actually oftentimes interfere with the work itself. For example, have you ever 
known someone who every idea on the job had to be their idea. You ever known someone like that? Like, or, or even, you don't even have to apply it to the job. Like every idea has to be their idea. It, they, they have to be the one who comes up with it. They have to be the one who gets the credit for it. And they wind up dragging everybody else down if they don't get their proper credit or what they think is their proper credit. So what's going on? Their, 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 their esteem, their significance, their sense of importance is wrapped up in it being their idea. And the job itself takes a, takes a back seat to, to them, right? They are, they are more important than the job itself. Think about how interpersonal relationships and business are affected when a person's identity is derived from their job, from their title, from how much influence they have. And time and resources and energy are lost while people contend for who gets the credit, who gets the praise, who gets the honor. On the other hand, there's a great deal of effectiveness that can be found when we begin to operate from the place of finding our identity in Christ instead of having our identity tied to what we do or who we are or how many people we have under us. But While our work is not meant to be the source of our identity, let me also say this. It is meant to be an expression of our worship. I think we also miss the boat on this too because we think it's just nine to five. I get get in there, I get out. And we we, we live in this world where we, we compartmentalize. And so we have the secular part of our lives and then we have the spiritual part of our lives i.e. what we do here, time spent in, you know, in prayer and in Bible reading. And then we have the secular part of our lives. But for Paul, and certainly for God, there is no separation in the two. You know, we, we just tend to divide things into two categories, secular and spiritual, and everything kind of you know, falls into one category or the other. But let me remind you of the verse that sets up this whole section when Paul's talking about everyday Everyday parts of our lives, our marriages, our our families, our interactions with our kids, our interactions with our parents, even our interactions in the workplace, all of that is set up by the verse in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, which says, and you should know it by now because I've quoted it throughout this series, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's what sets up this whole thing. That's how we interact. Every relationship we have, whether it's in the home, in the family, in the workplace, in the church, wherever you are, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's what sets everything up. And so whether it's in our marriages or in our families or in the workplace, it's all an expression of our worship to God. Both good and bad, right? It's either an expression of our worship or it's, it's a detraction of our worship or who we are worshiping because it's all done out of reverence for Christ. For instance, how we go about our work is an expression of our worship. Paul says to the slave, again, we, we just read this a while ago, but I'll read it again in verses 6 through 8 of Ephesians chapter 6. He says, Obey them, your, your earthly masters, not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but really, here, here's what you're doing, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord. Because it's not about the job, it's about serving the Lord. It's not about people. Because you know the Lord will reward each of you for whatever good you do, whether slave or free. Paul speaks of slaves seeing themselves first as slaves to Christ. And he encourages them to see their work not as being for their earthly master or your earthly company or whatever it may be, but for Christ. So let me ask you, can you see what you do as being for your heavenly father 
instead of for your employer. Can you see that? Because if we can't, I think we need to take a step back and reevaluate what work is all about and where we are finding our identity and where we are expressing, expressing our worship. Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 6 that no matter who your vocational superior may be, you have a far greater superior who is always watching, who is always seeing, even if no one else sees, including your vocational superiors, in each of our lives and in each of our vocations, there will always be things that you do that no one will notice except for God. There will always be things. I don't need amens to know that, right? There will always be things in your vocation, even here in in our church setting. There will always be things that you do that no one else will notice, but God does. That's both good and bad too. God sees it all. And Paul says that God, not only does he see those things, but he will reward us. It may go unseen by men, but it does not go unseen by God. And so how we go about our work is an expression of our worship. I would also say how we treat those in the workplace is also an expression of our worship. Notice that Paul tells both slaves and masters to treat one another in the same way. You want to talk about revolutionary in that day? Regardless of how we view that, that's revolutionary to talk about a slave and a master, especially a master treating a slave that way. But he says in verse five, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart. Okay, that makes sense. But then Paul says in verse nine, masters, treat your slaves in the same way. This is obviously Christian context. What's the same way? With respect and fear, and sincerity of heart. And don't threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Remember last week how we talked about how fathers, and I've already mentioned a little bit, fathers had ultimate power over their, uh, over their families, and especially over their kids. Because in that culture, dads, that's just, that's the way it worked with dads. And so dad could, could do whatever they wanted to, threaten their kids however they wanted to, treat their kids however they wanted to, even take their lives if they wanted to. But Paul says, don't take that path. Don't take that path. Because if you abuse your power and your authority that way, then you are going to exasperate your kids. You're going to drive them to resentment. You're going to provoke them to anger. And Paul says the exact same thing in different words to masters. Don't threaten them. Now, why does he say that? Because as we talked about last week, so often our default mechanism when, 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 we are, when, we have, when we're dealing with people who are under us, when we're dealing with people who we have some measure of authority over, whether it be in the workplace or whether it be with our kids or wherever, whatever function it may be in, the default mechanism, the worldly, fleshly mechanism that we so often want to default to is to threaten them or to show our power over them. That's the default mechanism. Now, some of us are better at fighting back against that, but that is the default mechanism. Why? Because it's just easier to get things done. If I can tell you what to do and threaten you with negative consequences, it's easier for me to do that and to get it done than to actually take the time to maybe treat you in a different way. It's it's just, that's the worldly way to do those things. If you want to motivate someone to do something, the shortcut is to abuse your position of power. And yet it's also the best way to erode relationships. And ultimately in the long run, it erodes the effectiveness of the the organization, of the church, of the family, of the marriage. And so Paul says, don't take that. 
Don't take that path. Don't make that the default motivator. You treat slaves in the same way, with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart. You say, well, why should I respect and fear those who are working for me, who are under me? Why? That's not my job. That's their job to, 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 to treat me that way. Paul says, because you've got a master too. You've got a master too. And you're going to have to answer to him for how you steward them. And so how I treat the people I work with is a form of an, uh, an expression of my worship and my reverence to Christ as well. So I know I've given you a lot. Let me just give you three things kind of close things out. Three reminders, three things to keep in mind, I guess, as we kind of close out our time this morning when it comes to work. And the first thing is this, no person is unimportant. No person is unimportant. No matter who you are, there will be times in your life where you are going to be under somebody and there's also going to be times when you are over somebody. And, and, and we don't have slaves per se, but I think about you know, when it, when it comes to people under us and, and maybe some of the, you know, unimportance that we place on, on certain people. I'm not saying you in particular, but just sometimes as our culture and people do this. I think about people in the, in the customer service field. You know, sometimes it's easy for you. How many of you, and, and obviously I'm not guilty of this, I'm assuming that you are, but have you ever driven through like a, um, a, a drive-through and it takes longer because you're in a hurry and you get mad at the person that's taking your order? Or maybe I, I have had this happen to me. Thankfully, I handled it with such grace and obviously, you know, never got upset at all. But, but you... You know, you go to uh, a drive-thru and maybe, you know, you get past, I've been to McDonald's. I don't eat at McDonald's, my kids do. But they have two, drive, two drive-thru lanes and, and you get passed over. Something like that, right? Or, or it's taking longer or somebody doesn't do what they say. It's easy to view sometimes the people that do work for us, serve us in some way, as faceless people. And if it, if it doesn't go the way we want, we get upset with them, we treat them in certain ways. We're unsatisfied, and so we take it out on them. And yet, there's someone Jesus died for. No person's unimportant. We just have these, these labels in our heads of, of, and it's not even the person, it's just maybe the, 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 the job, maybe, or we think it in, in terms of these things. And I think it's just healthy to take a step back and say, this is a person that God loves. This is someone Jesus died for. He knows the hairs on their heads. He knows how many hairs are on their head. And they were made in his image. And they be, may be working for you or doing a service for you, but what if God has put something in you for them? No person is unimportant. Secondly, no task is too menial. No task is too menial because God sees it all and rewards accordingly. I love these words from uh, author Sue Monk Kidd. I'm just gonna read them and then you can digest them. She wrote, at a writer's conference, a woman told our group that in some way God was at the tip of her pen. That really hit me. And I began to view things very differently. I saw a sacredness in my work that I had never glimpsed before. God is at the tip of our scalpels, our screwdrivers, our computer terminals, our dust rags, our pencils, and our pens. And when we envision him and his purpose in what we do, then we begin to grow aware of his presence in the midst of it. He becomes our partner, our collaborator, as we offer our work to him task by task, moment by moment. We not only do it with God, but we do it for God. 
At the beginning of each endeavor, whether it's typing a letter, giving a seminar, or preparing a meal, we might simply say, I do this for you. Not only does this sort of dialogue keep us tuned into his presence as we work, but it also does wonders for our quality of work and our own peace of mind. Again, no task is too menial. And then lastly, there's no telling how God might use your work to advance his. His life's dream was to be a missionary. He went to school, then he went to seminary so he could go into the mission field. He wanted to go overseas, in particular to China, take the gospel to millions who had never heard the name of Jesus and the story of Jesus. While in seminary, he got married. The woman he married uh, was a fine woman, but she had some health issues. And it became clear that if they went overseas, she probably wasn't going to make it. She probably would not live very long. And so he put aside his dream and they stayed stateside. And so he went to work for his dad in the meantime, who was a dentist, but at the time also had a fairly lucrative, growing, budding, but beginning to be lucrative business on the side, selling unfermented wine to area churches for communion purposes. And so he took over that part of his dad's business while his dad went on to be a dentist and and carried on that. And he did that for several years, but he really struggled because he felt like he wasn't really doing something that truly mattered. But as time went on, the business kept growing, kept making more money, more and more churches began to buy the unfermented wine from him. And so he finally decided, maybe I can advance the work of God in this way. And as more money came in, he began to send more and more money out to missionaries who were working overseas in the land he dreamed he would once go, but never got the opportunity. And since then, the Welch family, Welch, you might have heard of them, has supported hundreds of missionaries to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ all over the globe. And when Mr. Welch came to grips with the reality that he wasn't going to be a missionary, at least in the sense that he thought of, and he realized, well, I'm going to have to work here selling grape juice, he thought it was the end to the best years and greatest years of his service to God. But what he failed to realize, at least at the time, is just how much God would do through him at his work at Welch Industries, supporting missionaries, which he once wanted to be. Because again, you have no idea how God might use your work to advance his. So keep working. I'll close with these words from Colossians chapter three. Paul says this, whatever you do, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him.